Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be continuing in our teaching series in the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 28. And as we're getting started this morning, we're going to have another. We've had for the past two weeks, we've had special guests read our passage for us. And this week, we're going to have someone from California, a couple from California, read our passage. Nancy and Charlie Crane are going to be reading it. Hey, good morning, Reach Life family from the Central Coast of California. We are looking forward to being back in Asheville, March 22nd, and being amongst y'all. We have missed you a lot. Okay, our reading today is from John 18, 28 to 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fill the, the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Amen. Well, this morning in our passage, we see that Jesus has been led to the headquarters of Pontius Pilate who was the Roman governor at the time. And this morning, as we're moving forward, we're going to see two kingdoms collide. Two kingdoms come together and collide. The kingdom of man is going to collide with the kingdom of God. And we're going to see what, that, what happens when these two kingdoms collide. And it's very clear, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, or if you've ever read the Gospels, it's very clear that the Jews hated Jesus. They hated him and wanted him dead, even though he is innocent of any crimes that he uh, being committed. And not only that, they are able to get Pontius Pilate, who 
as we see in this passage, and he'll say it later in, in chapters 19, he says, this man is innocent. He clearly says he's innocent, but Pilate even goes ahead and puts Jesus to death. And this raises a question right off the bat, is why did the Jews and Pilate condemn an innocent man to death? And the answer to this is, is tied to what I just said earlier, that two kingdoms are colliding. There can only be one king, and this kingdom has rejected the kingdom of heaven. And if you'll, if you'll remember, I want to I uh, explain something here, because if you'll remember back in verse 19 when Jesus is, is arrested, it says that they take him to Annas, the high priest, it says that in verse 19. But then it says that when Annas takes him, he, he bound him and he sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Have you ever seen that and, and went, who, what's going on here? Who is the high priest here? Is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? Well, I want to I try to clear that up this morning. Now, Annas, he was a, a very wealthy and influential Jewish leader who was among the people. And he initially became high priest when Jesus was only five years old. It's, it's interesting to think of Jesus that young, but Annas became the high priest and stayed there for 10 years until he was removed in 15 AD. But the people, they still saw him, because he was so powerful, they still saw him as the high priest, even though five of his sons eventually became high priests, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the high priest. But these, these men that came after him were only his puppets, because he was probably, Annas was probably the most powerful Jew in Jerusalem in the day. And the way that he made his money was primarily through the temple sacrifices. He, he set up this system that um, is a lot like going to the movie theater or a sports stadium or a theme park. You know when you go in, they check your bags to make sure you don't bring food and drink in, right? And why? It's so that you'll get thirsty and hungry and then have to buy from them. They jack up the prices so that they can make crazy profits. Well, that's what Annas was doing. He had animals within the temple that, that were, I would, let's just call them pre-certified uh, sacrifices that were without blemish. But the problem with this is that their cost was like 15 times, could be up to 15 times more expensive than if you brought it in from the outside. Now, you could bring your animal from the outside, uh, bring your own animal, but under a corrupt system, what would happen? They would look at it and say, no, nope, here's a blemish right here. We can't accept it. So in order to avoid the hassle, most people went ahead and purchased the animals. They made a lot of money doing that. Also, uh, they would not accept Roman currency in the temple. And that is because it had the, uh, the, the image of Caesar stamped on it. And they claimed that they didn't want to put that in the, the Jewish treasury. So they had their own Jewish currency, and they had exchange rates that were also corrupt. So remember when Jesus uh, comes into the temple, what does he do? He drives out the money changers and drives out the animals. And this is what's going on here is these guys are becoming extremely rich because this was an extremely lucrative business. They were making money hand over fist. And, and all those who were involved enjoyed what they were getting from it. They were getting power. They were getting prestige. They were getting position. They were basically getting fat off the flock. 
in a way that they shouldn't have. And so when Jesus begins his ministry and when he ends his ministry, he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. He turns over the tables. He condemns their practice. Basically what he's doing here is he's threatening their kingdom. And I want us to see that. His kingdom is colliding with their kingdom and he's threatening them. And when he goes in and he cleans the temple out, out basically he's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. This is not how my kingdom operates. My kingdom is a kingdom of truth, of justice, of equality, of love, and of serving. In, in other words, in my kingdom, the, way, the great, those who are great in my kingdom, they serve. But you are serving yourself on the backs of my people. You're devouring my sheep. And so Jesus comes in and he exposes, he's the truth, he exposes their hypocrisy. The people love him, so he's gaining popularity amongst the people, and he begins to threaten their kingdom, and the leaders say he's got to be removed. Why did they condemn an innocent man? Because he was, he was threatening their kingdom, and it's all about power. We need to see that in this passage. It's about power this morning. And so what, what do the Jews do? They, we saw a couple weeks ago they arrest Jesus have a mock trial for him, and they can't find anything wrong with him until he rightfully acknowledges that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, and they condemn him saying, well, that's blasphemous. And that's when we come to our, our passage this morning, verse 28. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. It's, it's most likely before 6 a.m. that this is happening. It's probably after 5 a.m. We know this because uh, that's when the, the rooster crowed. Rooster, have you ever had a rooster? Roosters are interesting creatures, if you really stop and think about it, that they crow in the morning, right before sunup. They used to think it was because they could sense that the sun was coming up, but as they've studied uh, roosters, now this is part of my, this has nothing to do with this passage, <laughs> but it's interesting. But they have a 23.8 a 23-hour, 0.8-hour clock inside of them. So I don't know how they reset it. Maybe it's like daylight savings they have that. But anyway, we know it was early in the morning. It's probably before 6 a.m. But look at what it says here. It says, this is what's very interesting. The next sentence it says, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So that they would not be defiled, but so that they could eat the Passover. This is such... Irony, this is such hypocrisy, this is such spiritual blindness, if you really think about it. Now, Jews were, were forbidden to enter into Gentile establishments because um, they thought that if they did, it, that, that it would uh, defile them. It would make them ceremonially unclean. A couple of reasons. Number one, that they would be unclean is because they were um, what we would call racists back in the day. They thought they were better than the Jews. They misunderstood what God was doing through the Jewish nation. They thought that they were better. That can happen with Christians, can it? Think you're better. If you don't realize what God is doing through the church, we can do the same thing. But they thought that they would be defiled if they touched or went into a Gentile's home. Secondly, if they went into a Gentile's home, it might have leaven in the, in the house. Therefore, if you were in a house that had leaven during um, Passover, you would be, become ceremonially unclean. And it would take days for you to cleanse yourself. So they wanted to eat the feast, but this is clearly uh, shows their spiritual blindness because the very one 
the very meal that they wanted to celebrate was to celebrate the one that they were trying to put to death. So much hypocrisy is going on in this passage. Verse 29 says, So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him. Now, this is another interesting answer. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Okay, remember, Jesus is innocent. And they're saying, if he were not evil, we would not deliver him to you. They are the guilty ones, and they are condemning the one who was innocent. And so in verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It's important to understand here that the Jews, because they were under Roman rule, they did not have the authority to execute someone. Although, when we get into the book of Acts, you'll remember that they put Stephen to death. And the way that they would have done it was was through stoning. They would have stoned him to death. But why, why were they not given the ability? Why were, why were they not able to do this? It's because Jesus' words had to be fulfilled. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will what? Draw all men to myself. And it's signifying the kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus prophesies, when Jesus says something, it's going to happen. It's going to, be, it's going to come to pass. So Jesus' words are being fulfilled here. Jesus had to be crucified. And as, as, these, uh, as Pilate and Jesus are beginning to ha- have a, a conversation in verse 33, we're going to see two kingdoms collide again, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of heaven. Verse 33 says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, as Roman governor over Judea, it was, it was Pontius Pilate's responsibility to make sure that he kept peace and order. And this is why he's in Jerusalem during Passover, because a lot of pilgrims would have come in, the city would have been flooded, and he was supposed to be there to quickly crush any uprising that might come about. And so when he says, when he comes to Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Don't think of it like we think about it. He's not asking, are you the Messiah? that's going to die for the world. He's, he's not asking that. What he's asking is, he, he's saying, are you a political leader? Are, are you a, in other words, are you a threat to Rome? Or even more close to himself, are you a threat to me right now? Because people, and people care about themselves, their own kingdom. He's, he's basically asking, are you seeking political power? Now, what is... Let's think about political power. What is political power? Well, it, it's, it's about controlling people, isn't it? Political power is the ability to get people to do something that they uh, wouldn't ordinarily do. It's enforcing them by power, by passing laws, by fear, by the fear of the sword, by the fear of punishment, by putting fines on someone or putting them in prison or putting them to death. And that's what Pilate is asking Jesus. Are you someone that is seeking that kind of power? 
Are you wanting to have the power that is, that is in this world? The power of the sword is what, they're at, what he's asking him. And this is what Jesus says in verse 36. And this is the, the area that I want to really hunker down on this morning. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And as we're going through, as we're looking at this verse 36, this, this verse helps us to understand how disciples of Jesus are to relate to political power. How do we as Christians relate to political power. And that's what I want to spend most of our time discussing during, for the rest of this, this um, sermon. So when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, I want to look at a, a phrase here. What does he mean of this world? It's important that we understand this because some Christians, and I would actually say myself over the years, have wrongly interpreted this to, to mean that we are to, to isolate ourselves uh, totally from the world, that we are, not, we are to insulate ourselves from all kinds of worldly influences and relationships with the world, much like what the Jews were doing with the Gentiles. I don't want to become unclean, so I, I don't want to, I got to be careful that I don't engage with the world. But you know what? It, it cannot mean that. It, it, can, it cannot mean absolute seclusion from the world, like monks up on a, on a, a mountain worshiping in monasteries. Because in, in uh, John 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says this, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, you see that? I don't ask that you would insulate them from the world and keep them like up on a, out, out from where the world is. That would be isolation. He says, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And look at verse 18. This is how I know that of the, being not of the world does not mean to isolate yourselves totally from the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus has sent his disciples into the world, but he's asked that God the Father, that the Spirit would protect us from who? From the evil one. So we are clearly supposed to engage in the world. Uh, we are to be Jesus's ambassadors, of, not of the world, but sent into the world, and our presence in the world should influence culture. And, and even in the, the New Testament, we see that uh, there are believers who are in the military, that are in the political realm. We see that, that they are all engaging with men and women and Jews and Gentiles. They, they, they engage with the educated, the uneducated, the rich, the poor, and everything in between. So my point that I'm trying to, to make sure we're clear here is that we are to be in the world, but not of it. Wherever we go, we are to be an influence. Wherever we go, the kingdom of heaven should reign in the area that we have of influence. I love Jeremiah 29, 5 
verses five through seven. And this is a, an Old Testament passage that was given when Israel, when the Jews were in exile in Babylon. And he says this, God says, this is what they're to do while they're in exile. Build houses. Don't y'all like that? That's why I build houses, used to build houses. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and, and, and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What is, doesn't this, I love this passage because it's a passage of, of, of um, fruitfulness, of productivity, of using what God has put into your, your hands and making it prosper in the kingdom that God has put you in. I, I love this passage because sometimes as Christians, we think we can get this, like the color of, of uh, living a Christian is gray. It's just like boring. You know, but that's not what this is. This passage teaches. It says, no, no, no. Engage wherever you are. Be in it, but not of it for the glory of the king. But how are we supposed to do this? This is the question that we need to answer. How are we supposed to engage? How are we supposed to be in the world, but not of it? Well, we're not to be like the worldly kingdoms. And that, that's for sure. We're not to do it like the world does it. The worldly kingdoms advance their kingdoms how? Through political power. If you think about it, that is how a kingdom advances. Through the power of the sword, through the power of of force, through bloodshed. And again, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it it was, my, my servants would be what? Fighting. What did Jesus tell Peter to do back in the garden when Peter tried to advance with the sword? He said, no, put your sword away. He said, put your sword away. I've got a better way than that, than using the sword. So we've got to be careful that we don't advance the kingdom of God like the world does. And and just as we can wrongly isolate ourselves from the world, we can also wrongly engage to advance the kingdom through political force. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about something that I don't know how it's going to go over with our people here with us this morning, but there is, um, there is a a view in America that uh, Christians, that this used to be a Christian nation. Have you ever heard that? That, that, that America was a Christian, it started out as a Christian nation. And, that we are the we are the new Jerusalem. We were a city set on a hill, but that over the years, America has drifted from her roots, her Christian roots, and we need to fight to get back to the, that being a Christian nation. And hear me out before you you stone me, okay? But this is I want to tell you that that is not a biblical view. That is not a biblical view. That that America was a Christian nation. And here's why. Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I didn't say it. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and the way that, that uh, people that are thinking like this often think is that to return back to the roots is that we need to, to do it through gaining 
earthly political power. And this is an ideology that's known as Christian nationalism, but it's not cr truly Christian. If we were, had been doing this uh, five, uh, three or four weeks ago, back when we were doing the, the other series, we would have called this an idea virus. And let me, let me make sure I'm clear here what I'm not saying. When I say this, I'm not saying that we should not be grateful to live in America, that we should not be grateful for our religious liberties and our freedoms and our blessings that we enjoy. I'm not saying that scripture forbids us from serving in the military. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that, that scripture says we should not be involved in the political arena. We should be involved as Christians in the political arena to help influence a healthy society if God has put you there. That's not what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is that we are to, to be seeking the welfare of the city. But we have to be careful. Listen, church, we have to be careful as we seek the welfare of the city, the city that we don't do what one pastor said. I, I like what he said. He said, you got to make sure you don't wrap the gospel in an American flag and uphold America as if America is the hope for the world. In other words, that as you are advancing America's agenda, you're advancing Jesus's agenda. And so therefore, we need to take political power. And the reason, again, I want to make sure that I'm clear here, is that the reason that I know that this is not a biblical view is because it says that Jesus in the scriptures is going to come back to earth. And he, he's He's not, his kingdom has not come on earth yet, right? But when he does, what is he going to do to all the kingdoms that are here, that exist? He's going to conquer them. He's going to overthrow them, right? If he were to come back today, what does that mean? It means that he's going to overthrow the United States of America. It's not, and when he sets up his kingdom, it's not going to be we the people, we're not going to vote who gets to be king. He already has, uh, has uh, established that. We're going to be under a monarch, a monarchy, where Jesus rules as king. And so we have to be careful as we are engaging, as we are seeking to the welfare of the city, that we don't do it, we don't seek to advance Christ's kingdom with the sword, because that's not how Jesus is doing it right now. That's the point I want to make clear right now. And so... Jesus, again, he's standing before Pilate. And basically what he's saying is, you know, we both have kingdoms to protect here. We both conquer. You conquer, I conquer. But the way you conquer, Pilate, is you conquer externally. You make people do things from the outside. You make laws and then enforce them with the sword. He says, I don't conquer that way. I conquer from the inside. I conquer the heart. I conquer through truth, through mercy, through loving kindness. And all my captives willingly and joyfully submit to me and serve me. So Christ's kingdom does not advance through political power. And, you know, I want to I look at um, what I think is the, shows the best way or how, how the, the best way that his his kingdom has advanced. And that is by looking at the early church. 
How did they advance the kingdom of Christ? How did they conquer their enemies? Well, there's, there's three primary ways that I want us to look at this morning, and they, they do not involve political power. And here they are. Here's the first one. They conquered their enemies by being passionate about the gospel. Okay, that's, that shouldn't be a surprise to our church, right? That is always going to be our, our power. <clears throat> it needs to be. It needs to be our power. It needs to be our motivation. It needs to be what changes our hearts. Uh, I like what a historian wrote. He says, early Christians were moved by a burning conviction. The event had happened. The event they're speaking here is Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. The event had happened. God had invaded time, and Christians were captivated by the creative power of that grand news. They knew that men had been redeemed and they could not keep to themselves the tidings of salvation. That unshakable assurance in the face of every obstacle, including martyrdom itself, helps explain the growth of the church. They, the, the early church was transformed, fully transformed from the inside out by the gospel. So they conquered, number one, by being passionate about the gospel. Secondly, they conquered their enemies by expressing, expressing Christian love in tangible ways. Now, as, as uh, Christians sought to seek the welfare of Rome, of the city in which they were planted, they began to live lives that, show, that, were, that, was, that were so contrasting to the ancient world. The ancient world had never seen what uh, lives like the Christians. One of the, the big things about among the Christians was that the equality that they showed among classes, whether you were a slave, whether you were the richest, whether you were middle class, poor, wherever you landed in, in all of these uh, areas of life, you were, tre- you were treated equally. And they, had, uh, they were very uh, strong on sexual purity. And this, is, this was a big thing back then because sexual purity wasn't necessarily a foreign idea to them because women were expected to be sexually pure. If, if the husband uh, was, uh, had a, another standard, though, he could have mistresses and affairs on the side and nothing would have been said. If a woman did that, she would be stoned. Well, in, in the Christian world, they said, no, 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 men, you don't get, a, you don't get to be uh, sexually immoral. So, th- so this brought great strength and health to the family and protection to women under these types of, of um, uh, teachings that Christ had, had taught. And so people were beginning to be attracted by this. And according to the historian Rodney Stark, he says Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many, of, many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. So they conquered, the the Christians conquered the world 
by being passionate about the gospel, by expressing, expressing Christian love in tangible ways. And number three, and this is really big, by being present. By being present. Now, Jesus' kingdom, one of the things that we talk about a lot in this church is that the kingdom of heaven is about relationships. It's relational. Our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And that is, that is how, how Jesus wants to advance his kingdom, by present relationships. And during history shows us that during the uh, second and third centuries, <clears throat> excuse me, there were two great plagues that swept through Rome. One was in 165 AD that lasted for about 15 years. They didn't know exactly what was, what, what the, what was causing the plague. And then the plague of um, Cyprian, which was in 251 AD. It lasted from 15, for 15 to 20 years. Now, we're sitting here with one year on coronavirus, right? 15 years, and this was deadly. These were deadly plagues. The, the Cyprian plague... At its height, 35,000 people, that's 5,000 people a day uh, a week, and that's 5,000 a day were being killed, were dying. It was 20 to 30, 25 to 30% of the population died because of this. And they, they didn't know what was causing it, but they did know that it was through contact. If you came in contact with someone that had it, you were most likely going to get it. So what happened was the rich people up and left the city. Um, also, the doctors did too. But what's, what history shows us is that the Christians didn't. They stayed <clears throat> and were present within the city. And, and what, it, what, we, um, what they learned was that if somebody would just be given some attention, if they would just be given uh, daily help, they could survive. The, 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 um, the percentage of survival went way up, whereas if you were abandoned, you were most likely, there's no hope for you. You were going to die. And the Christians stayed. And, and again, another historian writes this, most of our brother uh, Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. It's one thing to, to preach the gospel. It's one thing to point out what's wrong in, in society and, and in the world. But it's another to be present in people's lives. And the, the non-Christians were so stunned by what had happened back in that day that, that Christianity spread like wildfire. They conquered their enemies through love. And the question is, why? Why did they do that? It's because they believed our passage today. They believed John 18 when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. This isn't all there is. They had the assurance that the kingdom to come would actually come, and this empowered them to lay down their lives and to love their enemies. And you know, the church's most powerful 
when it's advancing the gospel, when the, when the sword is the gospel that we bring forth. And most people would say that the church uh, lost its power around 313 A.D. And if you know anything about history, that's when Constantine, who claimed to be the first Christian uh, emperor, he kind of flipped the tables. Up to that point, Christians were persecuted for being Christians. Well, he became a Christian, and the state suddenly became Christian. In one sense, the church took up the sword. And so you went from being persecuted if you claimed to be a Christian to if you said you weren't. And people were being converted not by the gospel, but by the sword. That's why we have to be careful that we preach the gospel, that that's the sword that we conquer with. So John 8, 18 teaches us how to have, uh, how to live as disciples in a political world. And Jesus says, I do have a kingdom and I have come to conquer, but it's much more than Rome. It's the human heart. My kingdom, I want to conquer the heart first. My kingdom is not of this world. I want to conquer the human heart, not by shedding blood with the sword, but by shedding my blood in love for my enemies. And again, if this is all there is, everything, if this life is all there is, then we need to fight. But Jesus says it's not. And we, the church, believe that. And because of that, we can change the world, not by taking up the sword, but by laying down our lives because Christ laid his life down for us. Amen? Amen.